Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and overpolicing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Repeating, we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. Hey there, I am your mad prophet of the airwaves and welcome once again to Radio Free Canada. News, notes and opinions from the underground for Monday, November the 14th in the year of our Lord, 2022. Take a moment and visit the website for this program, therichardserrettshow.com, therichardserrettshow.com. S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T, Serrett. And you can reach out to me with an email through the contact page. You can listen to all previous episodes on the listen page, and you can learn about my regular contributors on the about page, therichardserrettshow.com. The 17th GTA Heads of State and Government Summit 
taking place right now in Bali, Indonesia. You were in Bali, weren't you, uh, Jacob? Didn't you go to Indonesia? I think so. Uh, yes, he did. President Xi of China is there. So is our effete prime minister. Congratulations uh, go out to whomever this journalist was that asked Trudeau an actual question, a really important direct question. Not the usual softball question served up by an obsequious and obedient member of the bought and paid for lamestream media that we're so used to in this country. The kind of question that Trudeau normally has a rehearsed answer for. So it's quite remarkable to see what happens to Trudeau when he receives an actual question and he's actually forced to think on his feet, which is something he's clearly not capable of doing. I mean, you can actually see a look of horror register on his face, a look of panic. You remember when you didn't study and you received the uh, the, the midterm chemistry test on your desk and you started looking through the questions and you realized, oh boy, I'm in trouble. Oh no, what do I do now? So here he is. Here's Sox Trudeau being asked about the millions of Chinese Muslim Uyghurs who are being forcibly detained in camps, sterilized, used in slave labor and worse in communist China. And why Trudeau refuses to acknowledge the obvious, something that most of the civilized world already has stated, that communist China's treatment of the Uyghurs constitutes genocide. And then the long pause you're about to hear at the beginning is the sound of Trudeau being stunned by an actual question, paralyzed like a deer caught in the headlights. Have a listen. Today, you took an emotional tour of Cambodia's Genocide Museum. Tomorrow, you're going to be at the G20 with China. Now, the Canadian Parliament has already called China's treatment of the Uyghurs a genocide. So why haven't you? As I've seen when I visited the Shoah Memorial, Holocaust Memorial in Israel, as I've seen, as I visited the Holocaust Memorial, the the Genocide Memorial in Rwanda, and as I saw today visiting uh, and seeing the history of the genocide that happened here in Cambodia. The word genocide, acts of genocide are things to be taken incredibly seriously as a, as a world. We have objective historical expert processes to put in place those words and those designations. We continue to call out vicious human rights abuses around the world, including against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang by the Chinese government. The designations of genocide need to be made by uh, proper uh, international authorities. Proper international authorities. You need an international authority to tell you what is what is and what isn't genocide. In February of 2021, Parliament voted 266 to zero in favor of a conservative motion stating that China's actions in the Western Xinjiang region meet the definition of genocide. 
that was set out in the 1948 United Nations Genocide Convention. So Trudeau and his cowardly cabinet, of course, decided not to show up for that vote. Of course not. They didn't want to upset their communist Chinese overlords. And I'm not kidding. I mean, it's becoming increasingly apparent that our crime minister and his creepy band of grifters in Canada, or in cabinet, rather, are seriously compromised. They behave and they vote as if maintaining approval from communist Chinese officials is paramount. After all, Trudeau has made it quite clear he is an admirer of China's basic dictatorship. This is one of the most evil regimes of the 21st century, and Trudeau approves. He's made that very clear. Uh, Another damning study on the safety of the experimental Pfizer and Moderna gene therapies, this one from the Journal of Food and Chemical Toxicology. Now, you won't hear anything about this from Canadian news outlets. Why would you? They're too busy carrying water for the authorities. That's that's what they get paid to do. Uh, So instead, we learn the important news, as we so often do, from Canada's most trusted news source, Tucker Carlson of Fox News. Have a listen. We're developing through technology an ability for... Let's try that again. Wrong clip. Here we go. Here's Tucker Carlson. A link to neurodegenerative disease, myocarditis, Bell's palsy, liver disease, impaired adaptive immunity, impaired DNA damage response, etc. So it's possible, in fact, it's looking likely that the vaccine might suppress the immune system. This fact, the authors concluded, will, quote, have a wide range of consequences, not the least of which include the reactivation of latent viral infections and the reduced ability to effectively combat future infections, end quote. Now, again, we sincerely hope that's not true, but it's not just the conclusion of one scientific journal. The Lancet, maybe the most famous scientific journal in the world, released similar findings in February. The Lancet's piece was entitled, quote, risk of infection, hospitalization and death up to nine months after a second dose of COVID-19 vaccine. A physician called Kenji Yamamoto made this observation about the data from The Lancet. He wrote this in a letter to the Journal of Virology and we're quoting. The study showed that immune function among vaccinated individuals eight months after the administration of two doses of COVID-19 vaccine was lower than that among the unvaccinated individuals. Ah, Now, your first response, if you're a humane person, to a line like that has got to be deep sympathy. Because people were misled. They were forced. They were forced. Medical ethics thrown out the window. People were forced to take medicine they didn't want. And some of them may have been hurt by it. And you don't have to take this man's word for it. Pull up the Lancet study yourself. You won't find anything of the text of the article saying what Kenji Yamamoto said, which is weird. Why would the Lancet want to hide a major finding like that? We can't say. But if you look at table three in the piece, here's what you'll find buried in the data. Among people around the age of 80 who have been double vaccinated, that would include people like Joe Biden, the per capita rate of medical incidences, including hospitalizations or death, is nearly twice as high as the rate of serious incidents for the unvaccinated. This is 180 days after vaccination. What is that? And why is no one interested? Yeah, why is no one interested indeed? Meanwhile, Australia now canceling boosters for anyone under 30. But here in Ontario, the land that time forgot, our chief medical officer of health, Dr. Kieran Moore, strongly urging Ontarians once again to mask up in public places. 
He's also urging parents to mask their two-year-olds. Two-year-olds. Because we haven't already suffered enough. So I hope you'll all join me in telling Dr. Kieran Moore and all the TV doctors and the Liberal Party of Ontario and the neurotic hypochondriacs and the various teachers' unions to pound sand. All right, we have another fabulous Edward R. Murrow award-winning broadcast for you today, coming up in hour two. Uh, We've managed to free up some time for your calls, your opinions and questions. 289-275-9600 is the number to get on board. 289-275-9600. Again, last order of business in hour two, open lines. 289-275-9600. We'll also, in hour two, replay an earlier conversation with Reform Party founder Preston Manning. He's calling for a public citizen's inquiry into the response to the COVID pandemic. Also in hour two, Kayum Masimov is with the Uyghur Rights Project in Canada, and I'll get his response to Trudeau's word salad non-response to why he won't acknowledge the Uyghur genocide at the hands of the communist Chinese. This hour, not sure if you've been following the swift unraveling of billionaire Sam Bankham Fried's crypto empire, but it get, it's getting more bizarre by the hour. It is now being reported that there is a rather curious connection between Bankman-Fried's FTX exchange, the Ukraine government, and the Democratic Party stateside. Daniel Boardman from the National Telegraph will be here to break it all down. The media was enraged when one agent provocateur showed up at the Freedom Convoy protest in Ottawa last February, trying to stir up trouble by waving a Nazi swastika flag. But they remained curiously uninterested when the communist hammer and sickle routinely shows up at union protests. Wyatt Claypool, also from the National Telegraph, will be here to discuss. But first, Premier Tommy Boy and his radical progressive government unveiled their provincial fall economic update this afternoon. Jay Goldberg from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is here next with the gory details. The Richard Serrett Show, off and running for Monday, November the 14th. Facta non verba. We're back as the Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. All right. So the uh, provincial government announced that they are expecting economic growth to drop off as uh, we are heading heading into a uh, a likely recession they say possible i think it's pretty pretty likely at this point uh, let's get the gory details from uh, jay goldberg hey jay how are you uh doing okay after this budget not too great but not too bad either so i thought that we were the last time we were spoke we were talking about budget surpluses uh going forward and um it's but it looks like they're still projecting a smaller, but still actual deficits up until what, 2024, 25? Yeah, so the Ford government uh, likes to use what I would call magic math, uh, which is that uh, when the Ford government presents a document, they come up with a rather large deficit figure. And then the provincial bureaucrats at the Financial Accountability Office come up with another number. And nine times out of 10, the FAO is the right number. So the government is saying that this year's deficit is $13 billion. I have my doubts about that. But at the same time, if the government is saying the deficit is going to be $13 billion, that's a long ways from the $2 billion surplus we had last year. And we have to ask ourselves, where is this money going? It's not going anywhere. We're just seeing a deficit that's popping up again. It took us 15 years to balance the budget. 
And now the government wants to take us down a road of four or five years of deficits again. So the uh, the projections on GDP growth uh, not looking good. Just a half a percent in uh, for for next year, one point six percent in twenty twenty four, and two point one percent in twenty twenty five. I mean, so much I guess for for growing our way out of the uh, out of this uh, debt or even deficit, right? I mean, if if we're not going to be growing very much. Um, can they even count on in- increased revenues, which is basically the way that they they uh, narrowed the deficit the last uh, the last year or two? I, I don't think they can as much as they hope. The one thing that may uh, impact the numbers, which unfortunately is bad for taxpayers and good for government, is inflation. So you look at something like this: the sales tax. You know, we pay a percentage on the goods that we buy. And if the goods become more expensive, sales tax revenue goes up. In the last year, the government has taken in, in Ontario, $4 billion more in sales tax revenue than they projected. And that's exactly what you're saying about economic growth, but also inflation. And so at the CTF, we're saying the government is literally profiting off of inflation. We're seeing these low GDP number projections going forward. And it's time for the government not to try to stimulate the economy by throwing money everywhere, but to stimulate the economy by reducing taxes through cutting the HST so we can bring down the price of everything that we're buying. And the government should be doing it because they're getting a $4 billion windfall from inflation. All right, Jay, we'll take a quick time out, come back and continue to discuss a Premier Ford's fall economic update. And uh, we'll talk about whether there's any tax relief here uh, and um, other, you know, perhaps other affordability measures. Not seeing any, really. Back with more of our conversation right after he, right after these. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serrett Show. Welcome back. We're talking about the provincial government's fall economic economic update statement, which was released uh, this afternoon or delivered, I should say, by Ontario Finance Minister Peter Bethlen-Falvey. And um, again, it looks, I mean, it's hard to say, uh, they they uh, delivered a, um, a, a budget surplus last fiscal year, uh, despite projecting a deficit. Uh, but now it looks like we may be heading back into deficit territory again for the next couple of years. Uh, we're also looking at Severely reduced GDP growth over the next several years. Also, uh, a big reduction in job uh, growth as well. Uh, Jay Goldberg is with us, Ontario and Interim Atlantic Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, the job number is not looking great either over the next three years. No, the job numbers aren't looking all that good. And and again, this is a case of us needing to make sure that the econ- economy is stimulated, but in the right way. So reducing taxes, you know, the CTF has proposed reducing the HST by a couple of points because the government is profiting off of inflation in terms of revenue and people need incentive to keep the economy strong, to improve affordability and to potentially increase job growth in this province. And so the way to do that is to lower taxes and the government can't be complacent when you're looking at anemic GDP numbers, anemic job growth numbers, as we're looking at right now. 
Uh, well, maybe I'm missing something. I mean, aside from on the, and this was actually announced earlier before the fall economic statement, uh, that five point seven cent gas tax cut that took effect in July is going to be extended a year until the end of 2023. So there's some relief. But I'm, elsewhere, I'm really not seeing serious tax relief for businesses, for example. No, that's the main relief there. Obviously, you know, we've been pushing for that cut for a long time. Very happy to see it extended. That's the right thing to do for the finance minister there. And it's going to save a family with two cars that uses a car every day could save you up to $380 a year. This is also going to help businesses, of course, because everything is transported from point A to point B, all of your goods to get to market. So if gas prices are down, that's a good thing. We saw a little bit of adjustment. They've adjusted small business taxation so that if you're a relatively small business, they're kind of increasing the the, the threshold here. So if your business income is up to 50 million now, instead of 15, you're going to still be treated as a small business. So there's a little bit of help there, but really not what you'd like to see here. Again, it's a lot of spending. It's not a lot of tax relief and it's a big deficit number. And all of those are concerning. Uh, And um, the Ontario New Democrats, predictably saying, you know, not enough uh, money for health care. Uh, I, I mean, they may have a point. I mean, our hospitals, once again, under the crunch, which is why they want everyone to mask up because they can't handle, um, you know, our, our health care is crumbling in this province. Um, so would you like to would you like to have seen perhaps uh, belt tightening elsewhere, but maybe some money for health care or what, what are your thoughts? Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Um, yes, is the short answer. I think that the government, look, any government needs to have priorities. And this has been a problem at the federal level with Prime Minister Trudeau and at the provincial level with Doug Ford. And that is that they seem to want to increase spending in every area of government, regardless of need. And so what the Ford government is doing is increasing spending in every government department. We need a government that is prepared to say, here are some places such as corporate welfare, such as handing out money to political parties, where we can reduce spending so that we can increase it in targeted areas where it's needed. So it's pretty clear that there's a health care crisis in Ontario. Our pre-budget submission is going to call for the government to maintain its health care increases, and they have somewhat increased health care spending. But I think what you're going to have to see as well is the federal government step up. Justin Trudeau seems to want to spend money on everything under the sun, except to try to help out with provincial health care expenses. That is the one thing the feds continuously refuse to spend more money on. And I understand not wanting to write a blank check. You want to make sure that 
if you're giving more money to the provinces that it's actually used for healthcare and improving situational outcomes. But we have to fix healthcare in this province, in this country. And I think the Trudeau government needs to step up to the table as well. Uh, a little bit of a, a boost in the guaranteed annual income uh, system payment for low-income seniors. Are you happy about that? Yeah, look, I think in this inflationary environment that we have right now where the cost of living is soaring, inflation's way up, people on fixed incomes need help, and, and that's a good way to give it to seniors. Any other takeaways from the uh, economic update that, uh, that we haven't discussed, Jay? I would say look for the debt interest numbers. So the, the, the budget was presented just in August, a few months ago, and already the amount of interest they're expecting we're going to pay on our debt this year is increasing by $100 million dollars. Debt interest is set to go up by anywhere between $1 billion and $5 billion over the next three years each year. And so that's going to be a huge hit in terms of our ability to balance the budget. But it also means we're going to be sending billions more to Bay Street instead of spending it on health care, on education, on tax cuts. And so this just shows you that if you have years and years of deficits, it has consequences. So for all those negotiations that are going out right now with the labor unions, Doug Ford needs to be very clear in mind. We Running deficits now means fewer choices later and more money essentially thrown into the fireplace. And he's got to be very careful. And this province needs to learn that years of deficit spending has consequences. We have to stop it. Jay Goldberg, Ontario and Interim Atlantic Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Jay, thanks as always. Thank you. Taxpayer.com. Taxpayer.com. When we come back, the media doesn't care about radical, communist, socialist flags and signs at union protests. We'll find out why when Wyatt Claypool from the National Telegraph drops by. Stay with us. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. All right, welcome back. So uh, Wyatt Claypool, senior contributor at the uh, National Telegraph, has really um, written a terrific piece Uh, And it's so true. Uh, We were, um, of course, watching the Freedom Convoy protest in Ottawa back in February of this year. And uh, I think, you know, we we can all agree that uh, the sight of a swastika flag uh, or a Confederate flag just, you know, horrified by that. And the uh, the convoy protesters were horrified as well. They made uh, they made uh, it quite clear to the uh, people with those flags, you know, they weren't welcome. And, uh, of course, that wasn't good enough for the media. They were in a constant, a constant uh, diatribe against the protest and, and uh, were trying to claim that the, uh, the swastika flags and the Confederate flags were embraced by the protesters. And uh, the federal government did the same. But we don't hear the same kind of uproar from the media when we uh, when we see communist and socialist flags, the hammer and the sickle being waved proudly, routinely, routinely at union protests. Why is that? Wyatt Claypool, again, senior contributor with the National Telegraph, joins us. Hey, Wyatt, how are you? Uh, hey, Richard. Thanks for having me on. I really got to give my uh, photographer credit because he took a lot of the photos that you saw in that article that were really high quality. And I was able to actually talk about a lot of what was going on. Uh, because of course the media doesn't release any of the photos of these uh, of these socialist and communist flags at these uh, QP teacher union rallies. 
Right. This was the the QP uh, the QP rally in support of the um, the support the education support staff, um, and they were protesting at Queens Park. Now, in these photos, and they are terrific photos. I don't see any hammer and sickle, although I have routinely seen those at um, at union protests in Ontario at Queens Park. Um, and, and I'm not I'm not this is not hyperbole. I mean, routinely you see the hammer and the sickle uh, and in the name of communism, uh, about 100 million people have died over the last, uh, let's say, 100 years. Uh, and yet, as you point out, where is the outrage from the media? So let's talk about some of these flags that are in these photos. Um, there's a socialist action flag. What's the socialist action flag all about? The social. The Socialist Action is a lot like this other organization called Fight Back, and then the uh, QP4400, um, I think it's a frontline group or whatever it is, but they're all these uh, they're these sort of uh, socialist communist organizing groups that go around uh, and try to like, you know, sign up public sector union workers and other sorts of people to join their sort of anti-government, uh, like pro sort of worker commie type uh pressure groups. They're, they're effectively pressure groups. They tend to show up at all the union protests and whatnot. And the funny thing is, you know, union uh, leaders are there, QP leaders are there. They could care less that these people are around them. And there are dozens of these people around them. But yeah, socialist action is mostly just an organizing group. The, the, the flag I found most disgusting that was there, because you mentioned the fact that there was no hammer and sickles. And it's like, yeah, fair enough. There's no hammer and sickle flags. Although if someone was flying it, they could say like, oh, well, yeah, communism killed people. That was like 60 years ago. That's a lame excuse. But people were flying the Tigray People's Liberation Army flag, which is currently a communist group in Ethiopia that's going around and murdering people because they were kicked out of the federal governing coalition because they were going around murdering people. So in response, they're currently killing people in Ethiopia. And I guess that flag is just we're supposed to assume it's just representing workers' rights and ethnic pride or something like that. For the right. gray region. And there were some even uh, some Antifa flags at the protest. Yeah, I, I guarantee you like, the, the, the photos of those were a little bit hard to get at, but I could actually see the Antifa uh, lettering along the fringes of some of the flag photos that we had gotten. But like if you if someone brought like a Hungarian flag to a right wing protest, I guarantee you they would be saying that that's somehow an implicit uh, association with racism and extremism and whatnot when it's just the flag of a big European country, yet you can bring all these very fringe, weird flags. And the CTV News, CBC reporters, they will move heaven and earth not to actually capture an image of any of these flags. And they're all over the place when you see these photos. There's people holding signs that say, like, you know, like, it's radio, of course, that say, like, you know, effing parasites. Like, something that's an actual to uh, assertion of violence against people who don't agree with them, these uh, socialist protesters. And yet the CTV and CBC, somehow they don't see any of this. And they're disposed and they just cast the union as their reasonable people fighting for 11.7% raises against the evil Doug Ford government, who frankly is to shoot prove that he's a coward and not a conservative because he couldn't even last more than 48 hours against these union thugs. Right. Well, no, these are, these are extremists. They are, they are radical left wing extremists and these are the people that are uh, in our schools uh they're not the teachers they're the support staff they're they're custodians they're secretaries they're uh i guess counselors uh esl um workers special needs instructors and so forth uh and um they seem very, very comfortable with um, extreme socialist and communist dogma. They're in our schools. And 
when, what I would like to know is why, and this, this is sort of to go to the wage negotiation portion, I think you and I would both agree that we'd like to see uh, just teachers be paid on their performance. If you're a good teacher, of course, I'd like to see you get a wage increase. But how, like, has the education quality in Ontario gone up 11.7%? Has our <laughs> has the quality of education we've been go- getting been even just stabilizing? Like, no, it's been going down. And the people who are in part very responsible for why our education quality has been going down want massive raises for three years. Yes, they do. And um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's very telling, as you say, that the media could care less uh, that um, they're waving these extreme left-wing, communist, socialist, Antifa flags. Uh, But, of course, I would imagine that many in the media are totally simpatico with um, this ideology. So there you go. Uh, Great work, as always. Why a terrific article. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Richard. Wyatt Claypool, senior contributor with the National Telegraph. Support independent media, thenationaltelegraph.com, thenationaltelegraph.com. Another National Telegraph uh, senior contributor joins me next. Daniel Boardman will uh, will talk about the implosion uh, of Sam Bankman-Fried's um, FTX exchange and uh, and how that took down Democrats' second biggest donor. That story's next. Stay with us. Back to the conversation on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk Saga nine sixty a.m. Last Friday, FTX. Filed for bankruptcy. This is one of the highest profile crypto blow ups. And this happened after traders rushed to withdraw about six billion dollars from the platform in just 72 hours. And uh, this story seems to be getting uh, stranger uh, every day or even every hour uh, here to help us make sense of it all. Daniel Boardman, senior contributor with the National Telegraph. Hey, Daniel, how are you doing? Well, doing better than uh, the, the crypto world. Okay, so you're going to have to hold our hand a little better at mine in particular, because uh, this is kind of nebulous territory for me. I don't understand crypto, to be honest. Um, Tell me, what is FTX all about? What is this crypto exchange? What did they do? Yeah, okay. so by no means am I a super financial expert, crypto expert, but I have made the effort since the Freedom Convoy to kind of learn this world. So. The crypto exchanges are basically places where you can pay standard fiat money and exchange it for a numerous amounts of cryptocurrencies. Uh, now, there's high skepticism. Uh, so there's two worlds in the crypto market uh, that, that people will talk about. There's sort of the Bitcoin world versus the crypto world. And the Bitcoiners like to say, you know, we're, it's different and Bitcoin's the only decentralized one and all else is manipulated and we're the only you know, currency that can't be messed with. And what is happening here is a lot of the axioms that they present are coming true. So there's a big thing that the that a lot of Bitcoiners or people really into this space will say, not your keys, not your coins. Uh, meaning if you keep your money or your cryptocurrencies on the exchanges and you don't withdraw them and put them in a self-custodial wallet, well, then they can be taken a few minutes at a time. And this is one of the things that FTX did is it was using the money on the exchange to essentially cover their losses or pump money into their you know sister company, which was run by this guy's girlfriend. Um, and they are also pumping up, like they were paying their employees with a, like a token. So they kind of created their own new cryptocurrency, which is like 
essentially FTX coin. And instead of paying employees in money, they were paying them in this coin, which they were artificially inflating the value of because they controlled the exchange so they could manipulate, manipulate the numbers to make it look uh, more legit. And then once there was a pin sort of burst and you saw people leak this information out and that it was a bit fraudulent, well, then you had a rush of people wanting to withdraw their money off this exchange, right? But it turns out the money wasn't on the exchange because they had used it in sort of an unethical way, right? You can't use investor money or client money to right. do other things. So then the whole thing collapsed and we found out that they'd been doing all of this stuff. So this, in on one end, it's like a classic story of Wall Street S greed where they were using fraudulent money to um, pump up their own stocks, in this case, their own coin, and then it all collapsing. The more interesting story is the fact that this guy was essentially using sort of woke capitalist cover to get in bed with the Democrats to right. push his, you know, uh, you know, like to have the regulator to have the regulators go in his favor and sort of take out his competition. So, okay, so this is you're talking about Sam, Sam Bankman. Is it freed pronounced freed Sam Bankman freed or I fried? Think, I think SBF is what he's SBF, I think right. for that just because we're very cool here on this show. Okay. Yes, we are SBF. He's the former wall street trader and uh, he partnered with an ex Google employee, George, uh, Gary Wang. They founded FTX. So uh, SBF um, was, I believe now listed as the second largest democratic donor after George Soros. So he was funneling money from FTX to the Dems, to the Democratic Party. Some are saying that much of their 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 war chest that they used to to fight the uh, 2022 midterm election basically came from FTX. Now, it even gets stranger, though, Daniel, because there are now there are reports circulating that uh, a lot of the money that the U.S. taxpayer money funneled to Ukraine uh, in aid the Ukrainian government then funneled that, invested that into FTX, and then FTX funneled it back to the Democrats. Yeah, I mean, I, I've i seen those reports. Um, they're, they're, again, I'm no financial expert. What it kind of looks like is, you know, on the surface level, you know, FTX had jumped in and done this whole thing. Like, we're going to help Ukraine, so we'll be the ones to funnel cryptocurrency to Ukraine to help them fight the war. And, you know, you could say, are you, are you going to say no to money if you're the Ukrainians? Like you're, you're fighting off an invasion and someone offers you money. You're like, great. If someone offers you like, here's a hundred thousand dollars in Cardano. Sure. We'll turn it into money and, and use it somehow. So you have this where FTX was a sort of facilitating, let's say the crypto funding of the Ukraine war and, and great. And then the questions come, right. How much of this was like funneled back in, you know, like these again, how much, how much in foreign aid, is going to buying weapons to fight the Russians, which is what, you know, it should be used for. And how much of it is used as like sort of the, you know, the Trudeau-esque we charity slush fund where you're giving some money to Ukraine, but half the money you're giving to Ukraine comes with the condition that it's actually going to be given back to you. So, I mean, it has all the appearances of a money laundering operation. Yeah. And it probably is, um, or I, I don't want to say that it's, so hard to tell because so much, you know, right? So much of this, the, the crypto space is unregulated. No one knows what they're talking about. You're moving coins from, you know, Cardano to Solindo to Ethereum and then back into the, the pockets of, of the Democrat donor, right? Or to someone who's like, you know, it's a Hunter Biden thing, right? Except they're probably smart enough to, it's like, no, Joe Biden's son, it's his nephew now, right? Like you, you have this stuff where it's just like going to be nearly impossible for us to trace down. 
Um, and I think, you know, I, I tend to side with the, the Bitcoin maximalist community here where, where it's like everything that's not Bitcoin is essentially a scam. Like all these cryptocurrencies you're seeing, they, they're just, you can manipulate them in some way, right? Like if it's not like Bitcoin where it's like, it's actually unmanipulatable, there's a fixed amount, no one can pump or deflate the value artificially. Um, when you have things that are cryptocurrencies, but they essentially operate in the same way that fiat currency does, where you can just type an algorithm and then add more or less or and manipulate the value through things like FTX, you know, trading more of their own coins they commit. Um, is this right? This is essentially you're gambling on, on funny money and computer code. Right. So, SBF's whereabouts. Uh, do we know where he is? Did he not uh, flee the country? I think he was in the Bahamas. I mean, I heard reports that the Bahamas police had arrested him because again, you go, I mean, you, you do, you put money, you do a crypto exchange, you're off, <laughs> you go out of America. This is all so hard to trace down. And, you know, he was, we do know that he was laundering money or, or essentially selling money to his, his, um, his girlfriend's organization, which was like his capital firm. Right. And and they were like, so we have that known. And then we just don't know, you know, if it was laundering money on behalf of the Democrats, it, if he just swindled the Democrats with this woke stuff, um, this is going to need like, again, I'm not going to be the one to get to the bottom of this because, you know, my head starts to spin on regular finance terms when I get into the weeds. So you add this new crypto space and, you know, I'm doing I'm going a lot faster. But well, I think a lot of heads are spinning right yeah. now. And but you did help to uh, to uh, shine some light on this and, and uh, make it more understandable. Uh, for the rest of us. Thank you, Daniel. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Daniel Boardman, senior contributor with the National Telegraph, support independent media, the nationaltelegraph.com. Hour two awaits. Uh, we'll, we'll hear from uh, Kayum Masimov at the Uyghur Rights Project. We'll get his reaction to uh, Justin Trudeau's word salad non-answer to the question about Uyghur genocide and why he won't acknowledge it. And uh, we'll also revisit an earlier conversation with Preston Manning, who wants to chair uh, a citizen-led inquiry into the uh, pandemic. Back with uh, more of The Richard Serrato, Hour 2, right after these. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Repeating, we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. Hey there, welcome to Hour 2 of The Richard Serrett Show. If you missed Hour 1, you missed a lot, but don't despair. Still plenty of great programming coming your way. TheRichardSerrettShow.com, that's the website for this program. TheRichardSerrettShow.com, check it out. You can 
listen to previous episodes dating all the way back to March of 2021. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. On the Listen page, you can... Learn more about my cast of regular contributors on the About page, and uh, you can contact me. You can send me an email through the contact page, therichardsarrettshow.com. There's actually even a, um, a feature on the website where you can call this program from the website. The number's right at the top of the page, the homepage, and uh, we will make the phone lines available to you. Last order of business this hour the phone number to get on board with your comments, questions, comments, 289-275-9600, 289-275-9600, And uh, also we'll revisit an earlier conversation. This is from, uh, I guess, Friday of last week. Preston Manning joined us, the uh, founder of the uh, Reform Party, former leader of the opposition. And uh, he's calling for a public citizens-led inquiry into the pandemic response. And I will tell you how you can uh, sign a petition and get on board with that. All right. So the uh, G20 meeting in Bali and Indonesia, the prime minister is there. So too is leader of the communist Chinese regime, President Xi. And uh, in a rare direct question, a non-softball question. Someone from, I don't know who this person was, but they should be uh, congratulated for asking the Prime Minister a direct, honest question uh, rather than the the, uh, the softball questions he usually receives from our obsequious and obedient lamestream media. He was asked this question. Today you took an emotional tour of Cambodia's Genocide Museum. Tomorrow you're going to be at the G20 with China. Now, the Canadian Parliament has already called China's treatment of the Uyghurs a genocide, so why haven't you? Deer in headlights. As I've seen when I visited the Shoah Memorial, Holocaust Memorial in Israel, as I've seen, as I visited the Holocaust Memorial, the, the Genocide Memorial in Rwanda, and as I saw today, visiting uh, and seeing the history of the genocide that happened here in Cambodia, the word genocide Acts of genocide are things to be taken incredibly seriously as a, as a world. We have 
objective historical expert processes to put in place those words and those designations. We continue to call out vicious human rights abuses around the world, including against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang by the Chinese government. The designations of genocide need to be made by uh, proper uh, international authorities. There you go. So the uh, forced detainment in concentration camps of several million Uyghurs in China, forced sterilization, slave labor, and worse. Apparently, in Trudeau's mind, that doesn't constitute genocide. Kaya Masimov is with the Uyghur Rights Project, and he joins us now. Kaya, welcome to the program. How are you? Good, thank you. Thank you for having me, Richard. Um, So back in February, I believe, of 2021, Parliament voted 266 to nothing uh, in support of a Conservative Party motion to declare this a Uyghur genocide by the Communist Chinese. Trudeau and, of course, his cabinet uh, decided not to show up for the vote. Um, Now, in this word salad, uh, word salad of an answer, he, he talks Trudeau talks about the need for some international authority. Uh, why do we need an international authority and who, you know, who might he have in mind uh, that would officially declare this to be a genocide? I mean, I've never heard such a thing. Well, Richard, I am as much puzzled as you are. Uh, I, I simply don't know, comprehend the stand of the uh, prime minister. Why was it uh, our government was so quick to acknowledge our indigenous uh, genocide happening in Canada or, for instance, Rohingya genocide? They never referred to any international institution, as Prime Minister is quoting now. Uh, for me and, and for many in, in the diaspora, it's just a lame excuse not to uh, to uphold its legal and moral obligation as Canada because Canada is a signatory state to Geneva Conventions uh, from 1951. So the, 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 as simple as that, you know, that's economic uh, mighty interests of some business circles in Canada. They do not want, you know, they, they would not would like to sacrifice their profits in, in the name of some purple, some people like, you know, being genocide, like genocided or like killed right now. And so it's, it may be it's more complex. It's beyond my comprehension to be to be to say uh, in simple terms. Well, I think it's beyond a lot of our comprehension, but I think I think you're you're very close to the truth there. I've wondered aloud many times in this radio show whether or not the liberal government uh, and others, not just the liberal government, are are deeply compromised and influenced by the communist Chinese in this country. I mean, we have recently just heard about this CSIS report about communist Chinese infiltration into our electoral process. This should be very disturbing. Uh, so it, it it does seem that we have uh, a lot of communist Chinese influence in the corridors of power in this country. And I think you're right to wonder whether that might explain, you know, why our government refuses to acknowledge what, what is painfully obvious to the rest of the world. Well, Richard, we, we've been advocating after our elected officials for decades, like really literally like I, I've been in first time I went in Ottawa 2001 
I met with Chinese, like so-called professionals from the Chinese desk of the global affairs. And we said, okay, we are Uyghurs, we're facing these issues in China. The first question they ask us, like, who are you guys? What is Uyghur? So, uh, you know, fast forward 2021, our parliament has acknowledged the Uyghur genocide and it's named the crime by its name. So we are very, very grateful for that. Uh, unfortunately, for some unknown reasons, our cabinet is still abstaining and it's not like not willing to name the crime by its name, which is genocide. Uh, you know, there are many issues, many topics, uh, but uh, most first, like, first of all, I would like to say that, you know, uh, our executive branch of the government, which is the cabinet of Trudeau, they should uphold and show some respect to the public of, you know, to the Canadian public, which is uh, manifested in in the vote, which was, uh, you know, unanimously voted, like expressed by the, our parliament, because the parliament, it is the voice of, it's a vox populi. It's the people who elect our officials and they represent people, you know. I would strongly encourage our cabinet to respect the will of Canadians, which was done uh, by, expressed by parliament in February, 2021. Uh, secondly, uh, you know, just, if we focus on Uyghur Canadians, like Uyghur community, there is not a single Uyghur Canadian family in Canada which was not been affected by this genocide. Uh, you know, everyone has lost someone. I have lost cousins, cousins. I really don't know what happened to them. Are they alive or dead? We have uh, family members like 30, 40 people gone missing in the concentration camps. It's very strange, you know, but uh, Monsieur Trudeau is uh, mentioning Holocaust, Shoah, I know it's like uh, there is no comparison uh, which, which would be accurate. The, the thing which I can say that the most ardent, uh, you know, sympathizers and, you know, the most help we get in Canada is coming from the Jewish community of Canada. Because these people, this ethnic group, they do not, they do know what is Holocaust, what is genocide is. Yes. And uh, it seems to me they, they making parallels and they like uh, adding up uh, stuff and they see, yes, this is genocide. Uh, so uh, I think it's shameful that our pres uh, our prime minister is, uh, you know, mentioning and or making our like parallels with Holocaust at the same time when the same people, descendants of the same uh, victims of the Holocaust, they've been so uh, favorably supportive, uh, you know, of Uyghur people in, in Canada. Uh, so maybe I should stop here, I'm not getting emotional, but this is a tragedy we're living day in, day out. And uh, we, as a as a community, as a whole, experiencing post-traumatic syndrome, depression, suicidal thoughts. It, we're not talking about uh, people who are being physically tortured, who had gone missing in the in in within the Chinese borders. We're talking about diaspora in Canada. We are also victimized being in Canada. We also harassed and intimidated by Chinese security officials. You know, so then many many things which are you know not adding up, and. Uh, frankly, we don't see that, you know, vocal interest or, or our government being vocal in defending, uh, you know, us as a Canadians, to be say, to it say truly, the least. It truly is disgraceful. Uh, Kaima, leave us with a website if people want to find out more and bring themselves up to speed and, and get informed about what is happening with the Uyghurs in China. Leave us with a website. Sure. Uh, www.urap.ca. So it's urap.ca. U-R-A-P, U-R-A-P dot C-A. Yes. Kayam, thank you so much for your time as always. You're welcome. Have a nice day. Kayam Asimov at uh, the Uyghur Rights Project. All right, when we come back, Preston Manning.
uh, looking to uh, form a citizen-led inquiry into the pandemic response. That conversation starts in about three minutes. Welcome back to the Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Preston Manning would like a uh, a citizen's inquiry, a public inquiry into Canada's pandemic response. And uh, the uh, founder of the Reform Party and the Canadian Reform Conservative Alliance joins us now. Preston Manning, welcome. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you, Richard. We should also point out uh, your brand new book, The Red Tape Letters. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. It's a great premise. Uh, I love it. So we'll uh, we'll get into that in a few moments. But first of all, let's talk about what would the parameters of, of such an inquiry be? What would it look like in your mind? Well, the idea is to have a national, independent, citizen-led public inquiry into Canada's response to the COVID-19 phenomena. And the idea would be to get at what went right what went wrong, and most importantly, what lessons can be learned from how this was handled so that in the future, national crises are are better managed. Would it be structured, let's say, uh, in a similar fashion to the current um, uh, Public Order Emergency uh, Commission? Well, there'd be a couple of major differences, but mainly this is sort of citizen-led, and there's been a big discussion on this. Some people say, well, the government should call this inquiry, but then, of course, that means it's the government uh, examining and investigating itself. Uh, other people say, well, the opposition political people should do it, but then it uh, it can very easily turn into a, apparently a, a witch hunt. So the, the main difference between this and, and an inquiry held under the Federal Inquiries Act, which is the uh, is that this would be basically citizen-led. And we, we set up this website called nationalcitizensinquiry.ca and inviting people to go to it, A, to say that, do, do you want this thing? If you do, please register. But secondly, asking them, who would you trust to be the commissioners on this? So we're collecting names that way because it's extremely important that this thing have credibility and a lot of that credibility will come from who are the commissioners and then the idea is to have uh, uh, hearings in about seven or eight locations across the country two to three day in-person hearings with room for virtual participation uh, ending up in in uh, a summary hearing in Ottawa and then these commissioners to produce a report shortly after that. Would you would sorry, not you, but would such a citizen's inquiry focus on any particular sector of the the population that, um, let's say, you know, suffered immeasurably from from the pandemic response, not the pandemic itself necessarily, but the pandemic response, for example, the elderly. That's a very good question. People go to this website. Another thing that's on there is an opinion survey that was done in the middle of October. Uh, which found that 74% of Canadians surveyed said that they were harmed by the health protection measures designed to cope with COVID-19. This isn't harmed by the virus, which it, it had harms, and, and that's been measured. This is people saying they were harmed by the uh, 
the health protection measures. And there were four categories of harms. Some people said their health was harmed because they were on a waiting list or they had relatives that died on a waiting list because the healthcare system couldn't handle the surge. Other people that said they were harmed in one way or another by the vaccines. There were harms to rights and freedoms, people who felt that their rights and freedoms were infringed upon, and that was a harm. The uh, social harms, uh, the uh, psychological and social harms from uh, social distancing actually turned out to be number one of the harms identified. And then, of course, the economic harms. And it will be expected that people will testify at this hearing as to the harms that they suffered. And uh, but if I was one of the commissioners and I, I won't be, but uh, I would always end up asking a witness, OK, we, we hear what went wrong. What would you suggest could have been done differently so that that harm to you could have been avoided or prevented? And I think what's very important is that the final outcome of this thing be positive in that sense that here's recommendations so we can learn and benefit from uh, even the things that went wrong. <clears throat> Uh, Mr. Manning, we'll take a quick time. I'll come back and discuss further his um, proposal for a national citizens inquiry into the pandemic response. National citizens inquiry dot C.A. National citizens inquiry dot C.A. There's a petition and you can learn more right there. All right. Back with more of our conversation in three minutes. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 a.m. It's the Richard Serrett Show. Welcome back. Preston Manning stays with us. He's calling for a public citizen's inquiry into Canada's pandemic response. Mr. Manning, also CEO of the Manning Center for Building Democracy, and he has a brand new book out called Red Tape Letters. And you can find out more at redtapeletters.ca. But uh, back to the inquiry, the proposed inquiry, nationalcitizensinquiry.ca. Um I mean, I know you're you're sort of putting these questions out there and you're asking for opinions, but let me ask you yours. Would there be would there be no go zones in such an inquiry? So, for example, would such an, an inquiry, in, to your mind, entertain alternative viewpoints that have been either uh, suppressed or censored? Uh, groups like the Barrington Declaration, for example, scientists that came forward and said uh, we're going about this all the wrong way. Uh, lockdowns are not the way to go. Uh, perhaps some scientists and medical people that uh, that uh, seriously question the efficacy and even, yes, the safety of the COVID vaccines. Would they be uh, welcome on such an inquiry? Yes. In fact, that would be extremely important. And people with different views would apply to, to testify at these hearings. And uh, the commissioners would uh, endeavor to get as good a cross-section as they can. And the two points I make to people that are interested in testifying with alternative scientific or medical perspectives or testifying about the impacts or testifying that they had a, a, a good experience is two things. One is there'll be a commissioner for oaths there who will ask you to affirm that what you are going to say is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, not embellished. And secondly, you'll be subject to cross-examination, uh, probably by somebody who may be even more knowledgeable on the subject than yourself. And in that way, endeavoring to get all kinds of opinion in there, but to get uh, a balanced uh, perspective as possible. Uh, it's a public inquiry, a citizen's inquiry, so it wouldn't have subpoena power, I I'm well, that, that's one of the things, because if you had it, 
if this inquiry was done under the Public Inquiries Act, for example, that would the commissioners would have the capacity to subpoena people, uh, and particularly maybe people who would be reluctant to testify for one reason or another. And this inquiry will not have that capacity. Now, it will have the capacity to invite those people to uh, participate. And if they say no, th- there'll be some pressure as to well, why are you saying no? What have you got to hide? Uh, would it be your your desire that a public citizens inquiry, uh, because, every, you know, the proposals and everything obviously would be non-binding, uh, that it would lead to an official government public inquiry? Well, I th- think the challenge there, Richard, is that there's a skepticism. In fact, there's skepticism about anybody holding an inquiry. People are so... Uh, you know, skeptical these days. But the trouble with a public, uh, government-sponsored inquiry, I think people would feel it's going to be a, a whitewash. Governments investigating themselves are not going to get into it. Now, the governments could do that. And, and when, when this inquiry makes recommendations, of course, it has no power to compel their acceptance, but but neither does a royal commission. A royal commission, it can be government-sponsored. It can put out a huge report, but it's still in the hands of the, the government or the authorities to whether they implement any of the recommendations or not. <clears throat> Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Uh, it would obviously, I'm, I'm gathering, be your desire that that such a uh, an inquiry would be would be receiving you know large media coverage uh, that it would be televised. Um, given that the mainstream media has been unfortunately sort of in lockstep with the uh, the official narrative and with the governments, uh, provincial and federal, uh, carrying water for them. In fact, um, do you expect to get any? mainstream media coverage, I guess, is the question. Well, we would hope so. And uh, there'll undoubtedly be testimony at this hearing criticizing the role of the particularly the legacy media in this whole thing. And then the challenge for the legacy media, well, are you just going to let that go? Or why don't you come and testify as to why you did and what you did and why you said what you did? So, I mean, it could be ignored, but if there's enough interest and attention, that might not be the wisest course of action for the media themselves. How soon? One of the points that scientists will make, and they're, you know, they tend to do this in private because they don't want to lose their funding, but they, they argue that public servants or public administrators, politicians, and media people are not the best people to communicate science. 
And they point out you can get a journalism degree in this country without a single or a political science degree or a public administration degree without any courses in the basic sciences. No physics, no chemistry, no biology, no zoology, no mathematics and no statistics. And so are those people the best ones to communicate science to the public when you say this is a science based issue? And uh, I think if those points are made, then it would be to the advantage of those people that are maybe being criticized from that perspective to come and say, well, you know, th th this is how we, we handle it. This is why we handle it and, and defend themselves. Excellent points. Uh, Preston, we'll take another time. I'll come back and continue to talk about a, a citizen's inquiry into the pandemic response. Back with more of my conversation with Preston Manning in three minutes. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. NationalCitizensInquiry.ca. That's the website, NationalCitizensInquiry.ca. You can sign the petition and uh, learn more about former Reform Party leader Preston Manning's um, proposed national public inquiry into Canada's pandemic response. Uh, Richard, just on that, I should make clear to people like this, I'm sort of a spokesperson for this and supportive of it and helping to facilitate it. But there's a large number of other people that are involved. Over 20,000 people have uh, gone to that website in just the last few days saying they want the inquiry. So there's a sense in which this is a, a democratic exercise. There's large numbers of people saying they want it. And, and I'm and others are attempting to respond to that. Got it. Thank you for the clarification. How uh, t uh, how soon could such an inquiry be up and running uh, if you have? Well, the idea is to keep this website going in November and December, trying to build up support for it. We also got to raise money for it because it's going to cost something and people can donate on that website. And to get these commissioners in place by the end of the year, then the idea is to have these hearings start if everything went well in the new year. Uh, with the two to three day hearings uh, pub in, in person, but virtual, uh, starting in um, probably in Moncton for the Atlantic region, Montreal for Quebec, Toronto for Ontario, uh, Winnipeg for Manitoba, Saskatoon for Saskatchewan, Red Deer for Alberta, Victoria for BC, and then end up with this summary hearing in uh, in uh, Ottawa, probably by then uh, early or late March. And then uh, a formal written report to follow? Yes, as soon as possible, not, not dragging this thing out as soon as possible. Yes, after that summary hearing. Uh, you mentioned, um, you know, uh, that we need to fund this. Would this be crowdfunded and, and any estimates on how much such an inquiry would cost? Well, not, not at this stage. It depends. We're hoping to get a fair amount of in-kind contributions for facilities and things like that and transportation. But uh, there's a donation button on that uh, website and uh, will not be very dependent. on. I, ideally, these things are best funded by getting small amounts of money from large numbers of people. That way, somebody can't say you're in the pocket of some big donor uh, and that's the hope. So crowdfunding is one mechanism. This this website is another. We'll see where that goes. Nationalcitizensinquiry.ca. Nationalcitizensinquiry.ca. I know that you're asking for input, but are there any names rolling around in your head, uh, you know, as potential commissioners? 
Well, we're getting interesting feedback on that. Some people say that this for this hearing to have credibility, that the commissioners should be almost like retired judges or retired ombudsman or someone like that that's sort of been distant from the fray, hasn't been identified with one government or the other or a company or the other or interest group or the other. And then there's other people saying that you're going to have to have expertise on this panel because it's dealing with th- these kind of issues. You're going to have to have some medical expertise, some civil liberties uh, expertise, some economic expertise. And I think where we may end up, and I'm just uh, speculating here, is maybe the chief commissioner is somebody that's got this sort of distance and objectivity of a of a, a judge-like person. Uh, but the other members of the panel, and there'll be five, uh, will more represent this. It'll be a medical person or a science person or a, uh, a civil uh, liberties lawyer. I, I think that's the way it, we're getting feedback on both those scores. So we'll have to sort out what's the best balance. All right. Again, nationalcitizensinquiry.ca. All right. The new book, Red Tape Letters. I bet maybe a bit of a nod to C.S. Lewis and the Screw Tape Letters. It's kind of, uh, you know, that epistolary kind of um, uh, style. Uh, Tell us about the book, Instructions from Red Tape, Leader of the Bureaucratic Party of Canada to His Fellow Bureaucrats. Well, it's a bit of a spoof, but uh, I I conjecture that the the, the Bureaucratic Party of Canada is the largest political party. In the federal arena, you got 350,000 uh, public servants. you got 338 members of parliament, and you got 35 to 40 cabinet ministers with a prime minister on top that are supposed to direct and control this huge body underneath. So this is a bit of a spoof, but it's, it's indicating all the different ways that uh, bureaucrats can e- exercise control over the politicians. And uh, it's an indirect way of warning the political people that uh, uh, you, you, this is what you're going to run into. The joke in Calgary is that w- winning an election these days is like w- winning the right to ride the bull at the Calgary Stampede. <laughs> you know, there's this great big animal. You get to ride it. It may not be too friendly towards you. And uh, it's, it's a bit of a spoof, but it's got that sort of serious concern, uh, which is being discussed in a number of provincial capitals how if you win an election these days how do you actually get control of the bureaucratic machinery particularly if the bureaucracy is not sympathetic to uh, who you are or what you're trying to do right i mean we we hear this term the deep state bandied about in the united states but i think more appropriately it should be termed the administrative state people don't understand that so many of our laws and regulations are not are not even passed by parliament they're regulations you know, created by this uh, permanent bureaucracy, if you will, the red yes. tape letters. Uh, and he, people can go to redtapeletters.ca to find out more. Redtapeletters.ca. Don't forget the National Citizens Inquiry.ca website as well. Mr. Manning, a great privilege, and uh, thank you so much for spending some time. Okay. Thank you for having me, Richard. Preston Manning. All right. When we come back, We're opening up the phone lines, folks. 289-275-9600 is the number to get on board. 289-275-9600. If there is, in fact, a public citizen's inquiry into the pandemic response, who would you like to see called as a witness? Who would you like to see? Who do you think should be in charge of the commission or the inquiry, rather? 289-275-9600. 289-275-9600. 289-275-9600. Or uh, just about anything else you want to discuss. 
We'll do that on the other side. The Richard Serrett Show, right here on Saga 960, continues right after these. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. All right, welcome back. We've opened up the phone lines at 289-275-9600, 289-275-9600. A couple of questions. One, if uh, Preston Manning is successful and uh, is able to launch this public citizen's inquiry into the pandemic response, who would you like to see called as a witness? Second question is, Dr. Kieran Moore, public, uh, our chief public uh, health officer, medical officer of health, rather, here in, here in Ontario, strongly urging people to uh, wear masks in public settings. Will you comply? Simple question. Will you comply? 289-275-9600. All right, I'm not sure of the name here. The uh, line number one. Who do we have here? You were on the air. Who do we oh, have? Richard. Hi there. Who is this? Rio. Hey, Rio. Rio, can you hear me? I can, Rio. Welcome. <laughs> listen, listen to you all the time. So you'll have to ask me your questions one at a time. I'm a bit tired from work today. <laughs> and I, uh, what was the, the last thing you just said? You were asking something. Uh, well, oh, a couple of questions. Who, who, yeah. yeah. If, if there's a, pub, a public inquiry, and this is Preston Manning's plan, he would like to see a public citizen's inquiry, would not be a government inquiry, but a public citizen's inquiry into the pandemic response. Who would you like to see called as a witness? Okay, I could say the witness. We could say Trudeau, but I think we should do this. But you know, you know the show Bonanza. Yes. Yeah. Just he's guilty. You don't get to say. You know. You know when they always lynch the person. They want to, don't even let the guy talk. Throw him in jail. Like you know, I'm just tired of all this stuff. Like even like the latest thing, wanting to mask kids again. Like it never ever worked before, right? You know, people. Most people don't have logic, right? Like if you look at look at this thing that they want to do, uh, put masks on kids and and even us, right? Well, you know what? Isn't it important to eat properly? Why don't you just ban Kraft Dinner, ban Wonder Bread, ban Coca Cola, ban all the terrible foods that make people sick? Right? If you were so concerned with everybody's health, wouldn't you do that first? Well, there's a, an interesting point that you make there because uh, the vast majority of people that end up Initially, anyway, uh, the game has changed now since vaccination because many of the people that are vaccinated, mostly the people that are vaccinated, are now coming down with COVID because their immune systems have been compromised. And now we have studies coming out. um, And I just played it recently. I played a a clip from Tucker Carlson talking about this study from the uh, Journal of Food and Chemical Toxicology saying that the immune system in the unvaccinated are stronger than those in the vaccinated. So they are now vulnerable to all of these different variants, and they just simply can't fight off anything. But you make a good point yeah, about you know, eating right, because most of the people originally that were hospitalized, like 70%, were obese. The people that were most vulnerable, yeah. yes, the the elderly, the elderly with with, comp, with uh, underlying conditions, but the obese are the ones. So why are why isn't the government, as you say, promoting healthy eating, healthy living, exercise, yeah. vitamin everything, D? yeah. Everything they did was backwards. I'll give you my mother, for example. She's 83 now. Before the pandemic, she was A1, totally healthy. She would go walking miles every day, everywhere. I'm like, why would you go walk 
five miles away from home, you know, it's not that safe or whatever. Anyway, but she got this bit of paranoia in her. And, you know, my sister was more of the ones into this masking, keeping the distance. So basically, she just came out of the hospital now because she got osteoporosis. Uh, she was getting uh, weaker. She wasn't getting vitamin D. Her vitamin D was gone. And, okay, so she's out of hospital now, but she's nothing like what she was, right? Osteoporosis, like if you use your logic, you get that when, okay, usually you don't eat good. Your your vitamin D, you're not in the sun. You're not getting to walk. That's how you get osteoporosis. And she was fantastic before the stupid COVID. And my father-in-law died because he stayed inside for six months. His vitamin D went right down the toilet, right? And after six months, he, he turned 90 a month before he died. So the first time in his life, he stayed indoors for six months. And guess what? He died, right? Isn't that logic? Yeah, there you go. Again, uh, the, the number of people that were that that died or were severely um, injured or, you know, got really, really sick uh, because of the response to the pandemic, not from the COVID or not from SARS-CoV-2, not from the virus itself, but because yeah. of the lockdowns, the non-medical intervention. Yeah, I, you know, yeah. My, myself, I never even got vaccinated because I, I'm like, I'm not putting something in my body that I know nothing about. All of a sudden, they have a cure for this thing. Like, you know, if you go back to the old old shows, which I watch all the time, like uh, the Beverly Hillbillies, right? Mm. Granny supposedly had the the, the 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 cure for the common cold, right? And what was it? It was like your putching, your hard liquor, right? Right? There's not a there's no cure for a cold or a virus, right? The only thing you can prevent is to take care of yourself as well as you can. Don't get overtired. Eat properly. Make sure you got all your vitamins. There you right? go. Rio? Get fresh air, too. Indeed. Yeah. Fresh air, <laughs> good exercise. Rio, appreciate the call. Great to hear from you. Thank you so much. Take care, Richard. All right. All the best. Now, this is interesting uh, because the um, both Pfizer and Moderna have decided now they're going to launch clinical trials to track health issues like myocarditis after the COVID vaccination, right? So now they're researching possible long-term risks after you receive the COVID vaccine. Now they're going to do that? Now? <laughs> uh, excuse me, that's supposed to be done beforehand. But I guess this is the speed of science, right? The speed of science. Now they're going to test to see if there are any long-term risks. Too late. Too late for the billions of people that have taken the COVID vaccine, many of whom were coerced, forced, forced to take the vaccine. Unbelievable. Uh, Let's see. What else did I want to talk about? Uh, Oh, oh, this is interesting. This is delicious. There's a possibility Donald J. Trump may become the House Speaker. And that has the Democrats fretting big time, to say the least, where a number of commentators and pundits have noted that over the two years of Joe Biden's presidential term, if the GOP gains the House majority, it looks like that's going to happen. They're going to lose the Senate, unfortunately, because of some. uh, Do I need to get into that? It's all about the mail-in voting. We'll discuss that in another show. But uh, how that happened, all of the metrics were in the Republicans' favor. Six million more uh, Republicans voted than Democrats. Uh, You look at the presidential approval rating, all of that stuff. It was all in the Republicans' favor, and yet somehow they managed to lose again. But it's all about the mail-in voting. 
So the Republicans are going to have to learn how to play that game if they're ever going to win the White House again or the Senate. Anyway, so a number of people talking about how Donald Trump could return to Washington. And um, this would, uh, the, and I floated this idea several months ago. The idea is that he could run, um, how, how would he get into that? I guess maybe uh, a member of the, uh, the House, a Republican member of the House could step down. And Trump could run, probably in Florida. Then he could um, be elected to the Speaker, the Speaker of the House. And he would preside over the impeachment of uh, Joe Biden. Wouldn't that be rich? So uh, I'm not sure exactly the mechanics of how that would work. I don't even know if, according to the Constitution, the Speaker of the House has to be an elected member of the House of Representatives. I guess the idea that, that I mean, that, that wouldn't make sense. You would have to be an elected member of the House of Representatives in order to be elected speaker. But I suppose he could, uh, he could run in like a by-election. That's not what they call them down there. But if a, um, a member of the, of the House who is a Republican and maybe from Florida in a safe seat could step aside, Donald Trump would run in his stead or her stead and then be elected to the uh, the Speaker of the House, then would become the third most powerful, well, second in line to the President, right? That would be delicious. All right. That's it for me. My thanks to uh, Jody, Declan, and Jacob. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. I'll speak with you at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you Tuesday afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. 
Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.